0: If you have a Bible, or your Bible app, or your worship guide, we're in Psalm 7 today. And we'll get started by reading it. And I want to ask that you'd stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 7. Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest they, like a, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me, for you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered around you and over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord. According to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts. Oh, righteous God, my shield is with God. He saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. If man does not repent. God will wet his sword. And he has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. You be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us in it. Thank you that your word still speaks, speaks even now. I pray that you would attune our hearts and minds, even our imaginations, to your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what this psalm is about. Help us to understand what it meant to David who wrote it. Help us to understand what it means to us who read it. Help us to understand what it means regarding Jesus, um, who is the, the the subject and object of all of Scripture. Lord, would you do that in this time, in Jesus' name, Amen. All right psalm number 6 uh this is a psalm about uh being falsely accused it's uh, the sermon title for today is a little uh a little bold it's uh, for when you didn't do it uh that's what this psalm is about uh, so what i want to do is i want to show you that i want to show you um that as the, the basically the main topic of the psalm even going maybe a little deeper uh this is a song of david we've done some psalms that the that the title you know the superscript tells us it's a congregational piece you know psalm 7 was like that uh, to the choir master uh, this is not a congregational piece this is a personal uh song prayer of david and so what we see here and that superscript tells us it's, it's about a matter concerning Cush the Benjaminite. Now we, you can go flip through David's story in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st First Chronicles. Uh, we don't know who Cush the Benjaminite is. It's, whatever happened there, we don't know. But we do have a little bit of a clue in that King Saul, David's predecessor, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And in 2nd Samuel, in David's story, Basically every time it says somebody is a Benjaminite, uh, that person is causing trouble. Uh, that person is causing trouble specifically for David, specifically questioning his right to be king. So there was one story about how, remember, we kind of covered this when we did Psalm 3 a while back, David's son Absalom tried to lead a rebellion. And when David left the city, somebody was throwing rocks at him, cursing him, saying he stole Saul's throne, and that God's justice was finally raining down. Well, that was Shimei, the Benjaminite. And a little later, if you know David's story, there he uh, was—he was uh, of the tribe of Judah. There was a time, sort of late in his kingship, where all the other tribes of Israel said, "What part do we have in Judah?" And they crowned their own king, and they tried to separate. Uh, well, the guy who led that rebellion was a Benjaminite. So when it says here at the beginning, this is a, you know, a song concerning the matters of what Cush the Benjaminite said, uh, we can safely assume that this... Was was some kind of opponent of David, and then we actually read the text of the psalm, and we see that David is—he's um, in some kind of trouble. Verse one tells us he's being pursued. Uh, he claims to be innocent of the charges that are against him. He's asking God to bring judgment. So whatever Cush the Benjaminite said, we don't know. But what we do know is somewhere in there was some sort of accusation against David. Something that would cause David to say, Lord, if I did what this person said, then may I, you know, be torn apart. So, accusation comes against King David. This is his prayerful response to God. That's what this is. So, as we read this, we don't just want to try to figure out what's going on with David. We don't just want to try to figure out what it means to me. This We want to figure out how to... How do we enter into a prayer like this? What I mean is, is this is David's prayer when he didn't do it. In the same way, this is framed in Scripture as a prayer for us when we didn't do it. Uh, false accusations, being falsely accused. Um, I wonder if you yourself, as I'm talking about this, are thinking about a time when someone accused you of something that you didn't do. Um, false accusations come in lots of different shapes and sizes. Some of them are very minor, um, like uh, maybe uh, you know a, a friend, or maybe someone that you share a house with, a, a, a spouse, or a roommate, or a sibling. These are fa- little tiny micro false accusations tend to happen in households. Things like, why did you just look at me that way? I, I didn't look at you like anything. <laughs> uh somewhere in there is a false accusation. Or one that I'm um particularly guilty of making quite often. And Becca, if you're listening, you're gonna go, yup. Uh I tend to go, hey babe, where did you put my keys? She says, Charlie, I did not touch your keys. Well, I made a false we we make the little false accusation. It's kind of ingrained in us. We get in a habit. And when we're close to somebody, especially someone that we live with in our household, those can add up. And they can be painful. Why are you always blaming me for stuff? You, you, those add up. But they're not all small. Some of them are sort of uh, big. Uh, somebody was telling me yesterday, a friend of mine was telling me about a non-profit called The Innocence Project. And I looked it up. It's pretty cool. It's a non-profit uh, With lawyers and judges and powerful people, and and basically what they do is they go find folks who are have been in prison for crimes that they claim to have not done, and they get in there with DNA when DNA evidence wasn't done on the front end, and they pull out the DNA evidence and work to exonerate these folks. And most of the folks that they work with are people of color. It just so happens in our country we have we have some racism baggage in our country. And it just so happens that there are a lot of people of color, demographically, who, that we find out are been imprisoned for things that they didn't do. So the Innocence Project, you should look it up. That's a big deal. If somebody, uh, I, I was on their website and I read one guy's story and a, a lady was assaulted in her shop that she owned. And she was, uh, she was a white lady and she says that the person who did it was a, a, a man of color, an African American man. And then you read the story. Uh, she never actually saw him because he salted her from behind, um, and then the he was placed in a photo at the beginning, and then multiple lineups. he was the only constant person and If you go back and look at her testimony, it was sort of like, yeah, I'm not sure about that guy. The next time he came through, that guy kind of looks familiar, Of course he did. You saw him in the last one. Well, that guy really that's definitely the guy and innocence project went through and this guy was in prison for like 20 years for a crime he didn't commit some false accusations are really big however i think most of the ones that uh at least uh, me and i'm going to assume we in our culture the ones that really we carry around that hurt the worst are the medium-sized ones not very often, um, I don't know anyone in our church who's been in prison for a crime that they didn't do, although it does happen, uh, I think. But a lot of us have, we lost a friend or we lost a job um, or maybe we lost our reputation within a group of people because somebody came along and they said, you did this and you didn't do it. I know one time when I was younger I worked at a coffee roastery and I was fired. And when I was fired, I I, I said I worked there with all my friends. It was a it was a, a job I really liked. And they called me in and I said, Well we gotta let you go. I said, How come? I said, Well you, you left early on Friday. You weren't supposed to do that. I said, This last Friday? Yeah. Uh I left I asked permission and you said it was okay. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. But, but you still, you left earlier than I. Well, I left with that other guy. Is he getting fired too? No, he's not getting fired. Are, you're firing me because you say I left early, even though I asked permission, but the other guy is not fired. And he goes, he was silent. I said, why are you really firing me? <laughs> and it just so happened there was something that happened on the, in a board meeting and somebody in my department needed to get fired. And I was the guy. But it started with a false accusation. You did this thing. Uh, and I remember, I was maybe in my early 20s. Uh, that hurt so bad. It's the first time I ever lost a job. I, I felt ashamed. I, I'll never forget walking out of the office, past the coffee roastery processing floor, and all my buddies I worked with just looking down. They wouldn't even look at me because they didn't want to get in trouble too. And I carried that for years. Carried that hurt. I remember years later seeing one of the guys who fired me at a local pub, seeing a local band. And as he came up to talk to me, I felt anger rise up in me. I think a lot of us have these medium-sized false accusation instances we carry around. Sometimes false accusations or false allegations turn into abuses. Abuses. Uh, one of the very common forms of abuse, especially in the church, has to do with false accusations. Maybe a domineering pastor comes to you and says, you have a sin that you're not confessing to me. Oh, I don't know. Now you're lying about it. Oh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, now you need to stand in front and the, the, the spotlights come on, they push and they push and they push and they push. This is a very common story. All starts with false accusations. So this psalm is hugely relevant. Uh, it's pertinent. We need this. To sum all this up, this, is, this psalm answers the question, what should I do when I am falsely accused? The psalm gives us the answer. And that is so important because so much of the shame that we carry around, so much of the fear that we carry around, so much of the big, even systemic problems in our society, and so much of the little microaggressions that add up all somewhere trace back to somebody making an accusation that they shouldn't be making. So... What do we do according to Psalm 7 when we are falsely accused? First, look with me at verses 1 through 5. O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers. Deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it to pieces with no one to deliver. O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. <laughs> what do you do when you're falsely accused? First, go to God with your trouble. Go to God with your trouble. In these first five verses, we see the psalmist use... He starts with going straight to God. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. That's like present tense. Oh, Lord, my God, I am taking refuge in you right now. This is me coming to you, holding on. And then the psalmist, we see, we can sense uh, anxiety in his language. He says, He's, he's talking about being pursued, like he's being chased down. If they catch me, they're gonna tear my soul apart like a lion. And in case that's not a graphic image enough, rendering it to pieces. No one's gonna deliver me. This is this is an anxious heart crying out to God. And and then he goes on to make like a to like swear to make like an oath. Uh, if I did this, if I did the thing that, that they had said, let, let them pursue me, overtake it, trample my life to the ground, lay my glory in the dust. This is sort of like, I don't know if you did this. When I was a kid, we, we did a thing, me and my friends, where you said if you made a claim and somebody challenged your claim, you could say, oh, wow, oh, I swear, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And that was like a way of saying, if I'm lying to you, you have my permission to do something terrible to me. Now, it's not good for us to get in the habit of, you know, Jesus said, let your yes be yes. Uh, so, but that's a point of reference. David here is saying, Lord, I am coming to you. I'm anxious. These people are after me. I swear to you, I didn't do it. It's fascinating that David uh, doesn't go to God and say, I told them I didn't do it doesn't go to God and say, I tried to prove them wrong. There's no evidence here, at least in the psalm, that he has talked, that he has defended himself yet. He's starting by going to God. That's significant. You know, when we come across accusations, especially when they aren't true, it's natural for us to feel all kinds of things. We we feel vulnerable. We we've, we've just been attacked. We see that in David's language, they're pursuing me. Uh, we we feel uh defensive. Lord, if I did this thing, I, I just uh, it's like, whoa, calm down, David. We, we we get that our defenses go up and, and we feel insecure. I, I think part of what David's saying when if I did the thing, you know, let them grind me to the dust. Part of it is he's he's looking back at the situation. And, and maybe I'm going too far on a limb here, but I kind of get this sense of him sort of, did I do it? Did, 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 did I mistreat my friend? Did I mistreat my enemy? What? You know, very often, especially in one of those accused grad, accusing graduates to abusing situations, something happens that um, is called gaslighting, where the person making the accusation or the, the dominant person who's, coming after you or whoever, starts to question your judgment. They say, you did this thing. I didn't do it. Oh, yes, you did. You Well, did I? And you get confused. And what actually happened? And it's actually a form of abuse to, to do that intentionally to someone, to push and push and push so they question reality. And I wonder if that's going on here. But what's fascinating is David takes all of these things to God. We've talked about this before, praying with our emotions turned on, especially in our tradition, reformed tradition. Sometimes we, we, uh, you know, it might feel holy to turn your emotions off to pray. You know, my emotions are not trustworthy and God is holy. So, uh, even though I'm in the middle of a panic attack, I'm going to get myself together and, Oh, thou is Lord. You know, we get all controlled and it's not what David's doing here. He's, it's like a little kid. Running to their parent and saying, so-and-so did this to me. Tears running down their face. That's David here. Um, this reminds me, we, we've come to this, to 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. In small groups that I've visited in here on Sundays over and over and over again in the past months. And and I wonder what the Holy Spirit is doing with this verse where, where Peter writes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So at the right time, he will exalt you, casting or throwing all of your anxieties onto him because he cares. He cares for you. That comes to my mind here. You know what's interesting is David wrote this, but Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, the new David, this is what he did. When he was falsely accused in his trial on Good Friday for being some sort of political revolutionary and threatening the temple, He his mouth stayed closed. It's like a sheep before his shears, is silent. And then when he hung on the cross as a falsely accused criminal, right before he died, he said, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I'm convinced that Jesus wasn't just saying, Father, it's time for me to die now. What he's saying is, Lord, all of this, here you go. So between the event and you defending yourself, put yourself in God's hands. This might mean that in one of those micro situations, the, where did you put my keys? This might mean and one of those times you feel that anger rising up, or maybe a medium-sized or maybe even a big one. Before you open your mouth and you say, hey, listen, I didn't do it, you might need to say, excuse me for a moment. I just need to take a second. You might need to go away, take a breath, and then pour all of it out to God. He cares for you. So that's number one. Take your trouble to God. Number two. We find this in verses 6 through 16. Trust God with your case. So first, go to God with your trouble. Second, trust God with your case. Listen to this listen to how David speaks about God as a righteous judge who sees what's happening will make a righteous judgment and therefore that judge becomes like like a like a like a saving force for him listen to this he says arise O lord in your anger lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies awake from me for you have appointed a judgment David saying lord you have This is good theology. Lord, you have already decided, before this had even taken place, how you were going to handle this. Arise. Lord, get up and do it. He says, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered around you. Over it, return on high. This is courtroom language. Lord, gather the assembly. Gather the people. I wonder if he's talking about the elders of Israel. I wonder if we could think about this as... Not, I wonder, we can think about this. The assembly of the church. Maybe church discipline case. Lord, gather the people. Over it, return on high. Another way to, to write that, uh, uh, the Hebrew is this return sort of like, take your seat. What he's saying is, Lord, take your seat above the assembly. We're in court. He says, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. That's fascinating because, of course, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. But David here says, I want you to judge me according to my righteousness. I know I didn't do it. That's important. and We'll come back to that. He says, according to the integrity that is in me, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous. David is confident in God's judgment. You who test the minds and hearts, O oh righteous God, my shield is with God. He saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. David knows that God, the righteous judge, is more angry about the person wronging him than David is himself. And then he goes on to describe a scenario in which God, the righteous judge, uh, pours out his fury on David's accuser. There's an active judgment where God takes the accuser down. And then there's a passive judgment where God lets the accuser fall in his own net. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword and bend and ready his bow. He's prepared for him, his deadly weapons, making his arrows, fiery shafts, behold. And that's scary. He says, this judge is going to take this guy out. And then Passive judgment. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil. He's pregnant with mischief. He gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, dragging it out. He falls into the hole he's made. His mischief returns on his own head, on his own skull, his violence descends. David is going on and on with these images of God as a judge before the people. God as a judge who is just ticked off at the injustice. God, the righteous saving judge with a fiery bow and arrow who lets the evil person fall in their own pit. David is going on and on about this because he is expressing his confidence that God can handle this. Trust God with your case. You know, in my own experience, one of the hardest things uh, for me to do, one of the worst feelings in times when I myself have been falsely accused is walking away from the situation, looking and seeing that my accuser seems to have gotten away with it. Folks, that's happened to me before. Somebody hurts me. I feel ashamed. I have pain in my life. I'm wrestling with God and I look back and it seems like that person never once faced any consequences. What David is saying is, look, God's already decided how to deal with this. And that person, God's either going to take them out or they're going to take themselves out. You know, let me tell you why this is so important. And this is This whole judge me according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, peace. Let's talk about the gospel. We know that this psalm, just like every psalm, just like every part of all of Scripture, is ultimately about Jesus. And when David talks about God coming as this judge who sees the evil and understands David's feelings and can handle it, we as New Testament readers, we should see that Jesus fits here in the text. This is the Christological moment. We can think about how in Acts 17 it says that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man who He has appointed. And He has given assurance to all by raising them from the dead. On the final day of judgment, Through whom does God judge the world? Through Jesus, right? Jesus is God's righteous judge. So when David says, Lord, take your seat among the assembly. As New Testament readers, we see this is looking forward to Jesus taking his seat on the throne, judging the world. After that, David says, judge me according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. Now, we get in this habit. We, Of course we believe that there is no one who is righteous in and of themselves. That's part of what makes us Christians. Our gospel is that God sent his son into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, according to the apostle Paul teaching us how to remember it. God came to save sinners. it's why Jesus came, and that includes me first and foremost. Now, we have this, because we hold to that so strongly, we sometimes get in this habit, especially in church, when we find someone who has been falsely accused or who has experienced abuse especially abuse at the hands of maybe a pastor or an elder or a deacon or someone in power in the church, we tend to go very quickly to, oh, well, you know, none are truly righteous. So, now that's true. But when somebody comes to us, or maybe this has happened to me, maybe this has happened to you, you you go to the church authorities you come to pastor Charlie or you know one of our elders and you, you say something someone has violated me and they say well and <laughs> always it takes two to tango we have read stories and stories and stories and some of us have experienced that that is some very often the worst thing a church leader can say to someone who's been hurt to go straight to our theology of everybody's a sinner. I've read stories researching spiritual abuse of women who have been sexually abused by pastors over and over and over again who come to the presbyteries or the church councils and they say, this is what happened. And the response is, well, you must have done something. You must have provoked him. What were you wearing? Folks, this is, of course, that's an extreme case, but these are things that we do. Let me tell you something about the gospel. The gospel is that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Yes. Every day, every time, that's what the gospel means. But that's not all the gospel is. And that's not all it means it also means that Christ came into the world not just to save us from our sins, but to validate and vindicate our righteousness. Let me put that another way. The gospel teaches us that Jesus came into the world to live, to die, to rise, and to ascend on our behalf so that, as it says in this psalm, we can be established in our righteousness. So that the times where instead of being an offender, we were the offended, we find validation. Let me put it another way. Consider Jesus hanging on the cross. He hung on the cross for this, my sins and for your sins for the sins of his people, and even as it says in First John, even the sins of the whole world. He hung there for our sins. But he also hung there as a falsely accused human being. Which means every single time you are falsely accused, you can look to Jesus and know that he shares in your experience. And when Jesus dies as a falsely accused man and is buried and then raised from the dead, his cross becomes a judgment to the whole world. It's not just salvation. It's also a judgment. This is what Jesus meant when he said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And this is what the psalmist is ultimately getting at when he says, Arise, O Lord, take your seat among the assembly. When we think about Jesus as judge, we don't just think about him in the end sitting on a throne. We should think of him lifted up on a cross because his cross becomes hope for the offenders, but it also becomes validation and security for the offended. Let me put it one more way. Jesus didn't just die to take away your sin. Jesus also died to take away your shame. Now, think about the big problems we're dealing with in our society. We've already talked about racism. Let's hit that again. Personal racism, uh, systemic racism, uh, big picture racism, small picture personal racism, economic injustice, personal or systemic, uh, the injustices of abortion and its place in our culture. Uh, abuse in the church, especially sexual abuse, or spiritual abuse, domineering pastors. In all of these things, we can trace these problems somewhere, almost every time, to some sort of foundational false accusation. An accusation that a person of color is fundamentally less than because of the way that they look and the culture that they hold. That's a false accusation. An accusation that somebody doesn't have the money that they need to pay their bills simply because they're not working hard enough. Very often, that's a false accusation. The accusation that if we have this baby, it will ruin us. Because this baby is a problem. That's a false accusation. And an accusation that the church is simply not a place where we can raise our hands and say, I have been hurt. Because Jesus' church is. So all of these things come down to false accusations somewhere. Now, as we scramble and look for solutions in our big problems, and then by implication, our medium size and our small problems, we, like Alexis prayed, we try to legislate these things. We try to do all sorts of... Uh, uh, we try to argue about these all sorts of things, all before uh, when, when 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 what we need to do is some of that stuff is really important and some of it's really good. A lot of it's really good, but we need to start with going to God with our trouble, trusting Him with our case, and looking to the cross, because the cross of Christ is the place where offenders and the offended can be reconciled, because there they both find. Salvation. Do you see it? So David's showing us what we do when we're face false accusations. We go to God with our trouble. Pour it out. We trust Him with our case. We do that by looking to the cross of Christ. And then the last verse, He ends with, I'll give thanks to the, I'll give to the Lord thanks due to His righteousness. I'll sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Thank God with your praise. Go to God with your trouble. Trust God with your case. Thank God with your praise. Notice that David started this psalm anxious, afraid, rambling, and he ends this psalm secure, confident, direct statement. He starts this psalm thinking about the problem, his accuser, and himself. He ends this psalm thinking about God. Notice the progression through the prayer. God most high. That's Genesis 14. Remember that? Abraham before Melchizedek. Abraham, when he had essentially conquered the world and won nothing, he's confronted with God most high, God above everything. God fills the end of this psalm. Now, now David is in a place where he can do what we read in Romans 12. He can bless his accuser. He can forgive his accuser. He can seek peace as far as it depends on him. Now David's ready. Not before when he was frantic, but now when he's confident. And that's the message of the psalm. I hope that what you see here is that uh, that Jesus, God's man in the world, God's man under accusation, God's man vindicated in resurrection, and God's man sitting ascended on the throne ready to judge the world. We don't just look to him for salvation for some things. We look to him for salvation in everything. Every moment, every situation, all the way from my life was ruined by an abuser, all the way down to, honey, where did you put my keys? In every single moment, Jesus is the Savior. Let's pray.